You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10, as you're turning there. That last verse of that song spoke of resurrection and hallelujahs. You know why we worship on Sunday and not Saturday, right? Because it just seemed fitting in the early church that the church would gather together and worship on Sunday because that is the day that Jesus raised from the dead. In the early church, they called Sunday the eighth day. It was first day of the week. It was Resurrection Sunday. And it was all centered around Sunday. So, it is fitting that we sing songs of, of resurrection and Jesus raising from the dead and exclaim hallelujah on Sunday, even leading up to Easter. Because every Sunday is a is Easter in respect. Romans chapter 10. We've been working our way through the, the book of Romans. And we're in Romans 10. We find ourselves in verses uh, 11 through 13. So let's stand together as we honor the reading of Scripture together. pick up in verse 9, draw your attention to those verses preceding this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We believe that Your Word is, is sufficient. That it is enough. That we don't need anything else. So Lord, we pray that as Your Word is proclaimed, that it is, is taught this morning, that Your Spirit would take and, and use it in our lives. Guide us to truth. Guide us to understanding. May our hearts be open and receptive for what You have for us. Impact our lives. Guide us. Teach us. Conform us into the image of Jesus. If there are those here this morning whose eyes are, are closed and they can't see the, the truth of the Gospel, we pray that You would open them. They would see the, the beauty of it and respond in, in faith. Lord, we pray that the free offer of the Gospel wouldn't be missed this morning. 
that Jesus would be offered for your honor, your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Last Sunday, we really took and dealt with in just verse 11, and specifically that phrase at the end of it that suggests, well, it doesn't really suggest, it actually states that those who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame. So we took some time and, and looked at what it meant to be put to shame. If you're, if you're not going to be put to shame, you need to understand what it means to be put to shame. So utter disgrace, humiliation, being left speechless, exposed, and disappointed at the end that all of those things that we hoped and, and trusted in let us down. And the hope that is in verse 11 then is that Jesus Christ never brings disgrace or humiliation. Not in the end. He'll never let us down. He'll never bring disappointment to those who trust in Him. In fact, He will exceed every expectation that we have of Him as Savior and Lord. And in Him there is joy and contentment. Now even though we brought this up, this issue of shame in verse 11, it isn't the first time that we've actually seen this. Or specifically, it isn't the first time that Paul quoted from the same Old Testament passage that he quoted from there in verse 11. Actually, if you back up to the last verse in chapter 9, he quotes the same verse from the Old Testament. Now remember, when this was written, there weren't chapter and verse separations. Those things came much later. They came as a matter of convenience. And they are very convenient. We used them this morning. I said open up to Romans chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 11. It's easy to find passages. We all did it very quickly. Of course, there's a negative side to that too. When we're worshiping together, for instance, and I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 10 starting in verse 11, you and I get there quickly, but we also depend greatly on those chapter verse headings, don't we? But in a lot of Christian history, not only could they not do this because they didn't have chapter and verse headings, but many didn't even have a copy of the Scriptures to look down and read, to take and turn to. But they were forced to, to listen, to learn about the Scriptures. This is why it was, it was common for some to have large portions of the Scriptures memorized. And if they were not memorized, they would be very familiar with it and have it basically memorized. So when someone would say, in the Epistle of the Romans, where Paul quotes from Isaiah saying, and whoever believes in him and should not be put to, will not be put to shame, people would know what he was talking about. They would know whereabouts in the text that was. That that was where Paul was making this argument in chapters 9 and 10 for us. They, their minds would go there even though there wasn't a, a chapter verse reference. Now it's important that we understand what is happening Sometimes, with our chapter and verse headings, turn to chapter 10, verse 11, and, and we read it, 
we have a tendency to disconnect it from everything that has gone before it. And the fact is, we get a lot of bad theology from this. And it's easy to do. We take other portions, of, we, when we don't take other portions of, of Scripture into account when we're reading a, a single text, a lot of bad things can happen. This is one of the reasons we're going through the book of Romans, start to finish. So we see the flow of the text and how each text then fits within the whole. Of course, expositional preaching does not completely cure a mishandling of Scripture, but it is a starting place. It's a safeguard. Now, if you remember, in Romans 9... Back to the start of it, Paul is asking the question there, why are not all Jews being saved? Because it seems though, and this is where some people, Paul is anticipating the question, some people might say, if God was keeping His promises to the Jews, then all of them would be saved, but they're not being saved. So is God's Word failing here? Is there a contradiction that's taking place? Did God say that all Jews would be saved and then they're not being saved? Paul's answer to that was that no, Scripture has not failed. And as he's answering that objection, he teaches the doctrine of election, saying that the, the promises of God are for the elect only. And that there are some Jews and some Gentiles who number among this group. He gives examples throughout Christian history, or history at that time. Abraham. Abraham was chosen from a, a group of pagan people. Isaac was chosen as a son of promise rather than Ishmael, who was Abraham's first son. Then he brings up Jacob, who was chosen by God rather than his twin brother Esau, who was older. After Paul makes his point about the doctrine of election, he turns and teaches the, the flip side. The natural consequence to election, and that's the doctrine of divine reprobation. The doctrine that, that God then passes by some and leaves them to perish in their own sin. So God chooses to save some out of mercy, but then passes by others. And Paul illustrates this in the case of Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 18, saying that God has mercy on who He has mercy, and He hardens whom He hardens. Now, that is a quick reminder of Romans 9. And we spent several weeks unpacking that. But most people will look at the teaching of Romans chapter 9, they'll look at the teachings of the doctrine of election and reprobation, and they're going to say, uh, we don't like those teachings very much. And in turn, they pretty much ignore Romans chapter 9. You don't hear Romans chapter 9 preached and talked about very much. It's a difficult place to be. They'll say these doctrines just don't seem right. Which is why Paul takes so much time when he defends them and unpacks them. Now, of course, Paul is not just an advocate of these doctrines because he believes they are true and don't matter. He believes they do matter. He believes they matter greatly. They matter to the Gospel. And they establish what I would say is the bedrock of the Gospel. A foundation on which the doctrines of grace must rest. 
And that is, if one is to be saved, it isn't because of some merit within us. It isn't because of some merit that we've accumulated in some way, shape, or form. It isn't because of some good that we have in us. The fact is, we all deserve divine justice. Our sins are many. We can all sing that. We deserve the divine justice of God. We deserve His wrath poured out on our sin. And it is only for God's mercy towards some that they do not face the justice of God. God has mercy on who He has mercy. He is God. It's the point of Romans 9. In other words, His hand is never forced. He is never obligated to do anything. But within himself grants mercy to those he does, and the reasoning for that is unknown to us. There's tremendous mystery here. But we do know it isn't because of anything within us that makes us worthy of God's redemption. Here's the amazing thing, and now when I say amazing, I mean that after explaining these doctrines and defending them, putting forth a, a doctrine that Paul knows is going to, to really frustrate and infuriate some. I mean, Jesus said, right, if the teacher, the teacher goes through this, the teacher's persecuted, the followers can expect the same. John chapter 6, this teaching called, caused multitudes to leave. You know the story in John 6? Jesus was teaching that people would not have eternal life unless they believed in Jesus. And that had to be granted to them by the Father. That's election. And people back then were not fond of that doctrine, just as people today have trouble with it, as we labored and walked through Romans 9. But it's clearly the teaching of Scripture, and people left. The multitudes left in, in droves and caused Jesus to ask to the twelve, are you two, are you going to go away too? As we get to the end of Romans 9, specifically the last verse, and then throughout chapter 10, the Apostle Paul seems to be saying something that contradicts all of this. This is why I bring it up. What he's just said is that if anyone is going to be saved, it's because the Father must grant it. Now he turns around and says, anyone that wishes to be saved can be. Last verse of 9, chapter 10, verse 11. Again in verse 13. Notice, we already mentioned that verses, uh, the last verse in, in, verse nine, in chapter 9 and verse 11 are quoting the same verse. We'll get to that in a second. But verse 13 is actually a quotation from another place in the Old Testament, and that is Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And it reads this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Old Testament is looking forward to this. Paul is saying, this is, this is the place in which we live. That if anyone calls on the name of the Lord and wishes to be saved, they can be. Now it's important that we notice something that's going on in the text here. And that is that, that Paul, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, in chapter uh, 9 verse 33, and then in chapter 10 verse 11, he changes the quotation. The Old Testament text actually says, the one who believes will not be put to shame. Not everyone. The one there then is being the elect one, which is consistent with what Paul has just been teaching, which is interesting. But he changes it. Paul could have left it that way, but he changed it. Not that he changed it just once, he changed it twice. And at this point, we could get off on a rabbit trail, and it's an important rabbit trail, about Paul's use of Scripture, and if he was allowed to change the quote. Did Paul really do that? I mean, the people that were familiar with the text who didn't have the chapter verse headings and, and know this, and know the quotations in the Old Testament. Can Paul do this? Can he change it? Without going into that rabbit trail for the sake of time, the answer is yes, because what Paul is doing is making the meaning clear. Changing the verse that way, Paul does not do anything to the doctrine of election. He doesn't call into question what he had just said, but what he is doing is he's making the, the connection there absolutely clear. He draws our attention to that verse a couple times. Notice what he's doing. He quotes it at the end of Romans 9. Then again in, in verse 11 of chapter 10, people familiar with the text that we would have talked about earlier, they would have caught this. They would have recognized that that was a quote from Isaiah chapter 28 and that he's misquoting it. And then he misquotes it again. And then he turns and quotes Joel chapter 2 verse 32 and says, and it shall come to pass that everyone, and he quotes that right, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. People are getting it. They're seeing what Paul is doing. He's changing the quote because he's making a point. And after he draws attention to the quote from another portion of, of Scripture, the Old Testament, it makes it clear that what Paul does here wasn't a mistake. He was doing this on purpose. He was making it clear that he was intending to teach that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is what we refer to as the free offer of the gospel. The free offer of the gospel. That the gospel is freely proclaimed and freely offered to anyone who will believe. Get that? Freely proclaimed, freely offered Anyone who will believe. That's the free offer of the gospel. We believe that wholeheartedly. Paul just labors this. He's using the, the text here in, in such a way to make this absolutely clear to his readers. Not just misquoting Scripture. I'm not going to cherry-pick things 
Isaiah, when he says the one that calls on the name, really means everyone. He's making the meaning clear because Joel says the same thing. Now let's be careful in all of this. We get to Romans 9, then Romans 10. We don't want to suggest in any way that there's a contradiction in the Bible, that the Bible teaches two opposing things, that we should just be okay with the contradiction. If there's a doctrine of election here that God saves those who He has chosen and passes by others, and then on the other side, that anyone who responds to the Gospel will be saved. That is not a contradiction. The fact is, the Bible, the Scriptures, are God-breathed. They came into existence by the means of God taking and moving men by His Spirit to write down exactly what they wanted to write. So as, as though it was the words of Paul or Luke or John or Moses or whoever it was, these authors wrote down exactly what they wanted to write in the occasion that they wanted to write it. But it was also God's Word. It was the very breath of God. It was theopneustos, as Paul says. God breathed. And when we look at the origin of the book, being God Himself, there can never be any contradiction. There can never be any mistake in the book. God is truth. God cannot lie. He cannot contradict Himself. Therefore, His Word is the same. So let's just be as clear as we can. What Paul is saying is that although everyone is free to come to Jesus in salvation, and may indeed come if he or she wills to come, the only ones that do are the ones that God has chosen and regenerated. And the reason for this is because it is only, their new, only in their new birth are they enabled to trust Jesus Christ for their salvation in the first place. The two doctrines really fit together very nicely. We already said that the doctrine of election was important because it made God to be the hero of the story of redemption. Of our story of redemption. There's nothing about us that can respond positively to the Gospel. We are hopeless in sin and corrupt and do not see the, the truth and the beauty of the Gospel. And if we're going to be saved, it is because God is going to intervene. And the question that is, how does God intervene? The answer, He regenerates. He gives, new, he gives us a new heart. New eyes that see the truth and the beauty of the Gospel for what it is. He removes the, the veil that is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. That causes us to, to not see the, the beauty of the Gospel. And when that veil is, is removed, the person is born again, they are free to respond to the Gospel in faith. There's one sense that the Gospel is proclaimed to all, but the reason that only some respond isn't because some are not good enough or they're not worthy enough. It is because God in His wisdom hasn't shown them mercy. That is a difficult truth. I, I want you to have this background as we get into what Paul is, is saying here. I want you to have that 
theological background of the chapters 9 and 10 and how they correspond. But I also want you to notice that verses 11 through 13 are not in Romans 10 for the purpose of holding up the doctrine of election and the free offer of the gospel against each other and say, see, they fit. That's not, the, that's not what the text is here for. It's not justifying God or explaining two parallel truths. These verses are in the text to extend the offer of the gospel. What we have here is a free offer of the gospel. Paul is extending it. He's making it known. A fact that is made clear in the following verses where people... Uh, where we read that, that people need somebody to come in then and proclaim the gospel to them. Paul is going to ask the rhetorical question, how are people going to hear if somebody doesn't tell them? There needs to be messengers or, or heralds of the gospel message. You can't come to believe something if nobody's telling you something. If there's a free offer of the gospel, somebody's got to be offering it. We've seen the, the wider argument in Romans 9 and then in chapter 10 here, but don't forget that verses 9 and 10 are in there too. This is why I believe what we have in, in our text is really there for to be a, an offer of the, of the gospel. Romans 10 is, is, is heart belief and mouth confession. We talked about this, that we are justified by faith alone, and the product of that is our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And it just seems natural then, after Paul says this, in verses 9 and 10, that he makes a clear offer of the gospel. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And now he's going to extend it. You think about the greatness of this teaching for just a moment. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We do not have to worry that there will be those who long to be saved. Who see the truth of the gospel. They want to embrace it. They long to embrace it. But God is saying, nope. That doesn't happen. The teaching is clear. If one calls on the name of the Lord, if one responds to the gospel in faith, they will be saved. Let me see if I can point out the, the greatness of this in light of the doctrine of election. We've just said already that the doctrine of election highlights the fact that there's no way we can save ourselves. Actually, that really falls to the doctrine of sin and depravity. If, if we're going to be saved, it is going to be because God is intervening on our behalf. Now, look back at your life for a moment and ask, and I don't care how old you are. Twelve? Ninety? Look back at your life and ask this question. What is there that is so good about me that God should redeem me? What is there that's so good about me right now that God should redeem me? I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to believe that God would send me mercy. 
I don't deserve it. I'm wicked. I might be better than I was a while back. I might be a lot better than I was a while back. But there's still so much room for improvement. I mean, if God wanted to save someone, don't think I'm the obvious choice. Why do I say this? I say it because if one were to think like this, we would be tempted to think that the gospel is for other people, but not for us. But here, in the scripture, Paul is making the point absolutely clear. The gospel is for you and I. The gospel is for everyone who will believe. If you will just believe and and trust in what he has done for you, place your faith in him and believe, you will be saved. It doesn't make any difference who you are or what you've done. It doesn't make any difference if if you're wealthy or you don't have much at all, if you're educated or uneducated, advantage, disadvantage, a type A personality, somebody who's not that motivated, somebody who's very religious by nature or somebody who's not very religious by nature, somebody who's naturally a moral person and somebody who is not very good in that department. Somebody's old, young, been enslaved to sin for a long time, trapped in sin, and there doesn't seem to be any escape. Whether it is a sexual sin or deception concerning money or even murder, it doesn't matter. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The text is extremely clear, and Paul has made his point well. Everyone means everyone. If you would just believe, Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to Him as your only hope to recognize that that there is salvation is found in no one else. We can trust in ourselves. We can trust in our our good efforts. We can trust in all sorts of things. But all of those things are going to disappoint and end up putting us to shame. The only one that will not is Jesus Christ and trust in Him. That's what he's saying. Yes, it is the elect who call on the name of the Lord to be saved, but it's also true to say that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Everyone who believes is saved. So who is the gospel for? It is for everyone that will call on him. Someone might think, again, I don't think the gospel is for me. That There must be something that just excludes me. I'm a liar, a thief, I've sinned over and over, I've hurt so many people. Whatever the situation is. I want to ensure you that you are part of the everyone here if you would believe. If you would call on the name of Jesus as your only hope, place your trust in him, you will be saved. Just listen to how Paul brings this point out in the text. First, he says that there's no difference between Jew and Greek. The point here is that there's no real meaningful difference between any two different people groups. If there could be a difference between two groups of people, it would be these. On one hand, God chose the Jews to be his people over all others, a nation that was precious to himself, because he would bless all other nations through them. It is from them that the Messiah would come. It was to them that he gave the law special promises. I mean, if there was ever an advantaged people, it was the Jews. 
chapter 9 starts out because these are the people that were rejecting Jesus. Here, Paul, there says there's no real difference between these people as far as the gospel is concerned. The free offer of the gospel extends to everyone without distinction. The fact is, and Paul makes this point at the start of the book, that we're all alike under sin. Jews, Gentiles, we're all alike and that we're both under sin and Jesus died to save those people that would place their faith and trust in him. If you think that you're beyond saving, think again. That's the message. If you think that there is some other person that is beyond saving, think again. This has tremendous tremendous implications toward evangelism, doesn't it? Not only is the anyone referring to me, it's referring to everyone I come in contact with. Everyone means everyone. If they only believe, and how are they going to believe if somebody doesn't tell them? There's not one person that is worth saving and another not. We're all alike under sin. And if you will respond and believe in Jesus, then you too will be saved. Notice another thing that Jesus or that Paul says here. And that is that the same Lord is the Lord of all people. First, I wondered, why would, he, why would Paul say this here? But just think about it for a second. If there are different gods, right? He says there's one Lord. If there's different gods, and different people believe in each one of these gods, we would expect the different gods to treat all the different people differently in regards to salvation. But there's not. There is one God. And he's the God of all people. In other words, he's the God of all people, so he treats all people the same in terms of salvation and offers them the gospel just the same. And if anyone responds to the gospel, they will be saved. I find some of the discussion on this verse interesting. There's a little bit of disagreement who Lord is here referring to. Is it the Father or is it Jesus? Um, Without getting into all that, the best answer is Jesus. And the reason I will give is that Paul then quotes Joel 2.32. Everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Clearly, I think that's Jesus. It's clear that the Lord here, in, in Paul's mind, I think is Jesus. Peter, too, uses the same verse on the day of Pentecost. We know there that Jesus was, or that Paul, Peter was making reference to Jesus. But the point is that God treats all people the same in regard to the free offer of the gospel in salvation. There's, not, there's one Lord, and he is the Lord of all, and all are in the same boat. They all have the same need. And if they will just call on him in faith and repentance... You'll save them. The words call on here are interesting. Verse 13, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. One scholar said, uh, very simple words embrace a great deal of truth. Sometimes these words are, the words uh, to call on are used different ways in Scripture. Uh, first, um, they're used in reference to worship, like in Genesis uh, 4, chapter 26, chapter 4, verse 26, we're told that men begin to call on the name of the Lord, or they acknowledge God, they worship Him there. To call upon the name of the Lord also refers to, to prayer. Remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, the prophets of Baal, uh, the, the challenge there was to, to each call upon their God, to, to pray to their God, and the God that answered with, with fire was the, the true God. 
Another use of the, the phrase to praise, to call upon God, is to praise Him. The psalmist uses it this way in Psalm 116, verse 12 and verse 13. He says, How can I repay the Lord for all His goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I will praise Him. In the New Testament, the phrase to call on often refers to uh, people that, that believe or trust in Jesus. I'll give you one example. Acts chapter 9, where Paul is persecuting the church. The ones that Paul is persecuting, who he intends to arrest, are people who are said to call upon the name of Jesus. In other words, they're people that believe in Jesus. The letter of, I'll give you another, the First Corinthians, uh, that whole letter is addressed to uh, those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it's this really this last meaning that's in view in our text. If you're not a believer, if you've been ignoring the one true God, of course you probably haven't been praying to Him very much. You certainly haven't been trusting in Him. There's no praise or worship in your life. Uh, and the reason for that is because you do not have faith in what He has done. You haven't trusted in what He has done. That's not a real reality in, in your life. You might believe the facts, but you don't place your trust in that. So this promise that you will be saved if you call on Him, if you if, if you trust in Him alone for your salvation, that He bled and died on the cross for your sin, that He was raised in victory, that you might have eternal life with Him. Have you ever heard the, the story of the, the Edmund Fitzgerald? It was a, a Great Lakes freighter. It was about a, a thousand feet long. About as long as the Empire State Building. And it was heading to, it headed to Duluth to pick up some, some iron ore. Uh, it was during the, the first week of November in 1975. And the ship was making its way across Lake Superior to bring the ore to the industrial cities on the south part there. And the first day out on the lake, there were some really bad storms that moved down from, from Canada. The waves were 25, 30 feet tall. And as the, the ships were going, there was a freighter that was following the, the Fitzgerald there. And he was uh, extremely worried about the ship. He gave testimony later to what he witnessed. Uh, somewhere in there, the, the Edmunds Fitzgerald began to take on water and began to sink very low in the water. And the guy behind, the freighter behind, was, was watching all of this. And he's in radio contact, and he's watching the ship on the radar. And he's asking, are, are you okay? Can we help? What's going on there? What was interesting is the Fitzgerald's captain kept reporting to those people who were watching all of this, who were watching the ship sink lower and lower, and the waves come over the ship. They kept reporting that everything was fine. Everything's fine. Isn't that how people are? Maybe some of you are here in the same boat. But for some reason, you're this ship, and, and you know in your heart of hearts that everything is not fine. That you're taking on water, and that one day you're going to go down. And there will be no hope. You know this in your heart of hearts, but yet you're reporting in everything. Everything is fine. Maybe it's pride. Maybe you just don't want anybody to know that you're in need of something. I mean, what could it be about this captain here that is, that is saying everything's fine? And somebody's watching the boat sink lower and lower. 
Captain the Fitzgerald in his last transmission said, don't worry, we're holding our own. Captain of the ship behind him said, it wasn't seconds later that we saw a wave wash over the low-lying decks and the boat never came up. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.